Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen classes and trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen class library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Reyesa is the president of the National Resources Defense Council. She became president of the NRDC in January 2015, leading nearly 500 scientists, attorneys, and policy experts that make the NRDC one of the country's most effective environmental action organizations. As you can imagine, what we're going through today as a country in the United States has Rhea very, very busy, and her role as president of this leading organization is more important than ever. Welcome, Rhea. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jason. So NRDC, not much going on these days, huh? Yeah, as I was walking into the studio, I was saying to you, uh, there's no rest for the weary these days, for sure. And can you explain to people briefly who may not know what is the NRDC and how it got started? Sure. So the NRDC stands for the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're almost 50 years old. We were founded in 1970, one of the first environmental organizations um, in the country. And Our origin story is actually a pretty fascinating one. It's a combination of a group of literally brand new graduates from Yale Law School getting together and saying, hey, what could we do if we coupled the law with environmental protections? It was a really simple idea, um, but in 1970, pretty radical. Mm. A radical idea of putting legal tools in the hands of citizens to hold corporations and governments to account. So they joined forces with a community-based group in the Hudson um, that was working on trying to halt a hydroelectric project up there. Um, And this alliance evolved into uh, this major environmental organization. So we now do work in pretty much every environmental space that you can imagine. We do quite a bit of uh, climate, energy, transportation work. We do land conservation, wildlife conservation, oceans work. We do a a bunch of food and health work as well. And then we also do a lot of international work and local work. So you name the environmental issue and we probably do some work on it. But again, in thinking about our origin story, which I've done quite a bit in the last couple of years and certainly in the last seven months, <laughs> this this idea that you could use the power of law and the rule of law in our country to really uphold the environmental standards and values that we share as a people, um, that's never been more important than it is today. And so using our legal capacities, our policy capacities to really stand 
and amass a real front against the environmental assault that we're facing is critical. So there's really never been a more important time for NRDC and for the work of NRDC. So what is the State of the Union today? It's a... It's unfortunately not a pretty picture, um, I uh, will admit, although I don't think it comes to uh, as a surprise to anybody, um, how vicious the attacks in particular on the environment have been from this administration. I mean, look, I don't think most people knew what to expect from a Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just such a surprise um, and shock. But I will say that I think he's surpassed even our worst expectations of how bad an administration could be on environmental issues. And for, I think, a variety of different reasons, they have really singled out the environment as something that they're going after, which I think is a huge mistake um, because I think it completely is misaligned with the vast majority of Americans, but they have not wasted any time in pretty much attacking every single environmental regulation and protection that we have as a country. So in the five decades that NRDC has existed, we have uh, been a part of developing, again, this really incredible framework of environmental protections that, again, protect the values that we have, the standards that we have, the quality of life that we have as Americans. And I don't think this administration is leaving any stone unturned with respect to these environmental protections. So it has been an extraordinarily tough period of time, but it is one that is, I think, quite galvanizing for us. Mm -hmm. Again, kind of reaching back and deep into our core of who we are and what we stand for and how we communicate that to the broader American public, there's opportunity in this darkness. Um, and we are absolutely trying to take advantage of that. Yeah, I would agree. I think some of the things he's done, or the administration has done, are so egregious that he's almost forced a conversation and maybe in retrospect could actually, it's so bad that this could be actually the best thing ever for the movement because it has galvanized people and people have maybe not been ready to have the conversation around the environment. And now it's been forced in a huge way that's been so vicious and egregious that you kind of can't ignore it now. No, that's exactly right. So he's the best thing ever for the environment. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I would go that far. (laughs) Believe me, I think um, the, the world and certainly this country would be in a better place without him. But Uh, The fact that he's here, and again, as you said, the fact that they've gone so vociferously at this, I think has created this awareness that um, didn't exist before. I think a lot of people in this country really do take it for granted that we have clean air to breathe and Mm -hmm. clean water to drink. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Again, 1970s, here in New York City, you could be watching the Hudson River and seeing raw sewage just flowing Mm -hmm. directly into it. You couldn't actually see Brooklyn from Manhattan because the air quality was so bad. In LA, you couldn't actually send your kids out to soccer practice unless you looked at the paper and determined whether or not the ozone was safe that day. I mean, this was not that long ago in this country where the standards actually didn't exist. And I think over the course of time, again, thanks to environmental laws, protection standards, we have achieved this incredible quality of life that is really, I think, the envy of the world. And the fact that this administration is going after that, the very basic, again, quality of life that we that love life that we have achieved as Americans, it is 
it is unbelievable. And I think, again, it is an opportunity for people to um, realize that these protections, these laws can't be taken for granted, that we need to stand up and protect them. And we actually need to further them in many situations um, to ensure, again, the values and the principles mm-hmm. that I think we all share. And it shouldn't matter what party you're part of. This is about your health. This is about our well-being. This is about our planet. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. This is this is this is us. This is our everyday life. <clears throat> That's exactly right. I mean, the the reality is the vast majority of environmental protections laws standards were achieved in Republican administrations. <laughs> so Nixon ushered in um, the the big environmental laws. Nixon, the great us. environmentalist. That's exactly right. It was one of the the most important legacies of any president, um, and subsequent Republican presidents only furthered that. So we are really seeing a departure from the traditional conservative view of the environment, whether it's environmental protections or conservation standards. I mean, on every level, this administration, again, is redefining what it means to either be a conservative or a Republican. But I think that, again, they are miscalculating in that this isn't a bipartisan, this isn't a partisan issue. This isn't something that they should attack because they don't like liberals or they don't like Democrats. These are values that they're attacking. And as a consequence, they're attacking a vast majority of Americans that I think will um, uh, will come back to haunt them. And so w- what are the top three most egregious things that they've done? Like, is it exiting Paris, the Paris Climate Agreement? Like, what, what are the what are the things that are just the worst, in your opinion? Well, unfortunately, the list is long, but um, and they're all fairly egregious. But let me talk about three. So sure. you mentioned the Paris Climate Accord. Um, the fact that this administration uh, signaled that they would withdraw from a global pack, um, a historic pack for the first time in the history of world nations all over the world came together to agree on one thing. And as you and I both know, there's not much that this world agrees on these days, but the fact that they all agreed that climate was real, it was important, and that it was critical for nations to take leadership on it was really historic. So the fact that they have announced that they're going to withdraw from this historic pack is just an incredible abomination um, and an absolute um, kind of uh, symbol of antithetical leadership. You know, here's here's a pack that um, I mean, for goodness sakes, even North Korea signed this pack, right? We, I mean, this <laughs> redefines rogue nation, and unfortunately, we now live in the roguest of the nations. I think the ramifications for that, particularly because of what we're seeing with the advancement of a warming earth, um, are really disturbing. I mean, we have a window of time to uh, pursue aggressive action to curb our greenhouse gas emissions all over the world. And again, all other countries are taking really significant steps. The fact that the United States is not even, it's not just that they're not taking sufficient steps forward, but we're taking a bunch of steps, like a mile worth of steps backward. So I think that is profound. um, And it's a profound abdication of American leadership at a time where it is hugely needed. Um, And I think in the vacuum that America has left behind, you have countries like Germany um, and China stepping in um, Mm. and saying, we're going to be the clean energy giants. Um, It's not only good for our citizens and the planet, it's going to be our economic strategy for the next 50 years. So we've just basically ceded that to others, um, which again is just another complete travesty. Um, Aside from climate change, 
Um, recently, the administration, through the Environmental Protection Agency, announced that they were um, going to repeal something called the Clean Water Rule. Um, I don't it sounds like a good rule. <laughs> um, yeah, you you would you wouldn't think that. Uh, that would be a bad one. And that rule basically protects drinking water supplies for every one out of three Americans, right? So this is uh, as tangible um, and visceral as you get in terms of what so the role of government is in protecting the commons. Why would you repeal commons. that? Again, I think this, this administration has an ideology that there is no such thing as a good regulation. Um, and all regulations are bad, and all regulations should somehow be curtailed or um, eliminated, um, even the regulations that exist, again, that protect our commons, right? This is one of the most basic functions of a government anywhere. I mean, it kind of stems back to Mesopotamia, I mean, really. <laughs> so the, the reality that this government doesn't understand its role in protecting the commons and ensuring that the, again, air we breathe and water we drink right. are safe. Um, is pretty egregious. And so I think, you know, there's uh, no clearer indication of just how far this administration is going by the action that they've taken on trying to repeal this clean water rule. (laughs) Um, It's as simple and straightforward and kind of horrendous as that. Um, The third thing that I'll mention is something that maybe has gotten a little bit less attention but is no less egregious, uh, which is a review that they're undertaking right now through an agency called the Department of Interior where they're reviewing all of the monuments that were created um, going back to the Clinton administration. So national parks, monuments, conserved areas in our country. I mean, these are these are the gems of America, right? When people think about America the Beautiful, we think about Yosemite, sure. Yellowstone, these places that were protected thanks to Teddy Roosevelt and the turn of the century that define our character as a nation. Um, this this uh, These public lands, this federal estate has been added to by every single president, Republican or Democrat, since Teddy Roosevelt. And this administration is going after monuments that were created in the last roughly 20 years and asking the question, should we have created them? Should we make them smaller? Should we eliminate them? It's just never happened before. It's like of all the problems um, we have, that, why don't we focus on the monuments? That's exactly right. I mean, these are incredible incredible places all across the country, and they're places that actually have resulted not only in uh, the critical environmental protections that we need for um, wildlife and wilderness, but they've also resulted in real economic benefit for rural communities um, in creating, uh, you know, tour- tourist destinations and creating um, gateway communities. I mean, this it's it's uh, it's really important stuff, I think, in in rural America, particularly in the West. So by basically taking a hard look at uh, whether or not we should have these monuments and whether we should overturn them, again, is unprecedented. And we've never seen anything like that before. And again, I think it's absolutely antithetical to who we are as Americans and what we believe in. And you mentioned something earlier. We were talking about uh, something related to food and, and chemicals. Can you talk a little bit? It's, it's, a, it's something we have trouble pronouncing. <laughs> Yeah, these chemicals, these pesticides tend to have really clunky uh, clunky names, and I, I have our time 
with it as well. But there's um, there's a pesticide that we have been focused on for um, many, many years, uh, and it's called uh, clopyrifos. Sounds, Cl- sounds right to me. Clopyrifos um, is a pesticide that they're currently using for agricultural purposes. It's a pesticide that's already been banned for household purposes. And from our perspective, and basically from scientific perspective, it doesn't make any sense to ban it from household use, but then not ban it from the fruits and vegetables that you're putting in your refrigerator and putting into your bodies. So we've been petitioning the EPA to ban it outright. And we made a lot of progress in the Obama administration to uh, get that ban through. We didn't make it to the finish line. And sure enough, um, this administration, uh, through the Environmental Protection Agency, which is led by somebody named Scott Pruitt, who is um, best known for the fact that he uh, made a career out of suing the EPA and trying to prevent the EPA from doing its job as attorney general uh, for the state of Oklahoma. So I guess it shouldn't be a surprise to us that one of his first actions as EPA administrator was to basically say, "Mm, I don't think that we should do anything on clopyrifos. I think we should just delay it, study it more, despite the fact that the overwhelming consensus of science indicates that it's a neurotoxin, that it's a very, very bad set of chemicals that um, that humans should not be exposed to. Um, uh, you know, that, that is, it's insane, uh, it's insane but again, um, you know, all of the things that I just listed are, are some shade of insanity. Well, th- this especially too, because I think a lot of, you know, when we talk about the environment, uh, there's certain things people will, will ignore and can ignore because it doesn't affect their everyday life. Although when you talk about clean water, if you're one of those people who doesn't have access to clean water, it starts to affect you. But everyone goes grocery shopping and everyone eats. So that's something you're putting directly in your body. It's kind of hard to ignore that one. Right. Well, I mean, I think basically all environmental issues are probably as deeply personal as you can get. I mean, we are what we eat. We are what we breathe. We are what we drink. And so we should be conscious and aware um, and curious about whether or not our assumptions that the things that we're putting in our refrigerators and putting into our bodies or the the air that we breathe when we walk out of our apartments or our homes or the water that we drink when we turn on our tap faucet are safe. I think, again, because we have these standards and these laws in place and we have had these laws in place for some time, there's kind of a complacency that um, most people believe, of course, it's safe. Mm. But the reality is um, there are there are many things that are not. And that's why organizations like NRDC exist. That's why we do food work. That's why we do health work. That's why we do pesticide work is to not only raise awareness, but to put the pressure on governments to do the right thing on behalf of the people. So glaciers and coral reefs, what's happening there? Oh. And then we're going to go positive after that. We're gonna, don't worry, guys. Stay, stay with us. We're, we're just getting it all out there, and then we're going to take a turn, because there is hope. There is hope. There is hope, um, although uh, it is increasingly disturbing to see what's happening with the global ice reserves, mm-hmm. right? The fact that the 
single largest iceberg just cleaved off of um, Antarctica. Um, it's a larger landmass than what New England. Yeah, it's kind of big. Kind of big, unprecedented, and never seen anything like that before. And clearly, an indication that the world is warming. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you interpret that any other way. And I think the rapidity of how quickly we're seeing the disintegration of ice shelves is surprising even the most um, uh, conservative of uh, glaciologists or climate scientists. Um, So that is of great concern. I mean, I think all the projections of how quickly we're going to be seeing an increase in temperature globally are having to be relooked at um, almost on a daily basis because we're seeing, again, a greater acceleration of warming than we had even believed. Um, And that warming directly affects um, everything and certainly affects uh, coral reefs and the vitality of coral reefs. I was just talking this morning to someone who had just been out to the Great Barrier Reef Mm -hmm. in Australia and they were saying, well, there's still parts of it that are just extraordinary and whatnot. But there's just parts of it that are still extraordinary. I mean, 90% of the Great Barrier Reef is either uh, significantly deteriorated or completely deteriorated, right? 90% of really one of the world's greatest treasures. Um, And there's a direct correlation between what's happened um, in the Great Barrier Reefs, what's happening with with coral reefs all over the world, and climate change. Mm -hmm. And so just for people who who are new to this conversation, glaciers melting, coral reefs disappearing, why is that so bad? Like when temperature rises, some people will say, oh, global warming, people really aren't aware of the issues. Oh, it's okay, a couple, couple degrees here. Like that, that's terrible. Well, I mean, I think as it relates to things like habitat destruction mm-hmm. and the disappearance of wildlife, and uh, another thing that I think uh, most scientists agree upon is the fact that the Earth is going through its sixth mass extinction, mm-hmm. and that extinction is, uh, again, occurring at even a faster and greater rate than they um, predicted. Um, you know, the, the, the moral, I think, responsibility that we have as sure. beings on this planet to other beings on this planet. I mean, there's something deeply disturbing about the fact that we, as humans, are in many ways responsible for that sixth extinction, responsible to uh, for what we're seeing in the Great Barrier Reefs and other coral reefs around the world in our lifetimes, right? I mean, the, the difference that I can see when I go um, and dive in places or when I go mm-hmm. in places all the world, right? Like you, it's a tangible difference just in a short couple of decades. Um, again, I think there's some moral responsibility that we have um, as beings in this universe uh, to others. Um, And that weighs upon me and I think weighs upon many people heavily. I think um, with respect to, you know, why does it matter that this big gigantic ice shelf just broke off of Antarctica? Well, it matters because um, if you, like the vast majority of humanity, live uh, near or um, in a coastal floodplain zone, Mm you're going to be directly affected. So well, it creates devastating weather patterns, flooding, crazy, wacky stuff that, that people lose lives over. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't, I mean, the Weather Channel has kind of just made a huge name for itself of, of the big covering right now. crazy weather events. And unfortunately, they're not so crazy, right? Like they seem to happen with a regularity almost every week in the Midwest or in the coastal areas. This is supposed to be a terrible hurricane season. I think 
um, us as New Yorkers are kind of bracing for? Is there going to be another Sandy? And mm-hmm. certainly um, those of us who remembered Sandy, I mean, it, it, the, the visual, visceral um, reality of seeing the Hugh Carey Tunnel be flooded, right? Of seeing the subways in lower Manhattan totally closed and flooded. I mean, that that is... That's the reality of a rising uh, sea level that, um, you know, I go out to Red Hook and ride my bike and it's beautiful out there. I mean, Red Hook won't exist in 50 sure. years. Because Half a gumbo was underwater here. That's exactly right. I mean, I think if you go online and you look at any of the kind of predictions and the maps of the predictions and you plot where you live and what that looks like, again, the vast majority of Americans are going to be affected in some way because of the changed world that we've created. So we're going to switch to hope and optimism. So what... When you wake up, like what, what are you optimistic about? With all the shit that's happening now and the administration and another, it's like, oh God, another, another thing, another news, another shoe drops. Like what, what keeps you optimistic? I have to say what keeps me optimistic is my daughter. She's six years old. Um, you know, she wakes up and she's pretty happy most mornings, maybe tired sometimes, <laughs> but you know, she wakes up and she kind of takes charge and leaps into the world and uh, her um, experience of the world. And I feel like most parents uh, have a very strong sense of how do I, how do I make sure that her life, um, right. whether it's, you know, having a lunchbox filled or um, uh, having things for them to do after school. And then certainly, you know, having a future that's not going to be filled with catastrophe um, and unstableness. I mean, all of us, I think, are committed to that with our kids' futures. And so it is It is perhaps both a hope and a drive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sense of responsibility that I have on a really personal level, but I think it's a sense of responsibility that I think we also share as humans to each other um, that is a huge motivating factor mm-hmm. for me. The other reality is that you have to be an optimist to be an environmentalist. You have to believe that you can make a difference. And I strongly believe that everybody can. Um, I mean, the reality, let's just take food for a moment as a topic. Um, If you think about the world of food and how food has been so transformed, even in the last decade, let alone the last two decades, we have seen the rise in the kind of mainstreamness of Organics of locally sourced meals, of people um, thinking more carefully and more slowly about the choices that they eat and about how they're consuming products, that has radically shifted and changed the entire agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that change was a change that was based off of individual people making individual decisions about their choices. Um, and that added up to a huge revolution in how we think about food and how we make food and how we consume food. So I truly believe that the only thing that has ever really always made a difference is individual choices, mm-hmm. is people standing up and saying, this is what I believe in and I'm going to stand up for it. Right. Um, so whether it's what they're putting into their bodies or who they're voting in office or um, how they're how they're living their daily lives and making choices around that, that adds up in extraordinary ways that can, and again, always have changed the world. 
Well, I think every great movement in this country, and who knows, perhaps the world has started from the ground up, not the top down. Civil rights, we can go back in history, but it starts from the ground up. And it tends to happen when there's someone up top who's maybe a little bit disconnected and trying to force things on people. And it creates this groundswell. And that's how you get real change. And you couple that with social media and the world we live in with technology. I kind of think what's happening right now, even though it's terrible, could be an amazing opportunity for this movement to really take some some giant steps forward. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I I think about the civil rights era, um, and to your point, it's you know the actions of individuals, whether it was Rosa Parks not getting up off of her bus seat, or um, the millions that marched with doc, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, you know that that was um, probably the last great um, period of our country where. Again, the power of individuals collectively uh, were raised up to change the world and change the course and the direction of our country's future. I think we're in another one of those mm-hmm. moments. And it's a moment that, again, I, I would rather <laughs> not have um, had to, to confront, but there is beauty in this moment. Um, and there's opportunity in this moment, even with just the parade of horrors that we see every day. And that beauty and opportunity again, is about the individual people waking up and saying, wait a second, this isn't right, and I'm going to say something, or I'm going to stand up, or I'm going to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more people have that sense of responsibility and uh, this sense of passion around the need to do that than I've certainly ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, I was born in 1970 and kind of remember a little bit of that culture, but, um, you know, this is all new for me. I went to the Women's March. I was at the Climate March. I was joking with um, Bill McKibben. He was saying, you know, weekends are for fighting fascism now, (laughs) and we just have to kind of put that into our schedule, right? Um, uh, But going to these mass gatherings, um, it's really incredible. It is really incredible, and these are people that have never done anything like that before, right? Right. I mean, the client, climate scientists were the best, right? They all come, go out and they have the sign saying two plus two equals four. Like, how is that debatable? It was just fantastic to see, again, people from all walks of life standing up and saying, I need to make my voice heard because what's happening isn't right and I'm going to do my part in making it right. So what's the most encouraging environmental change you've seen well, again, I think the food story is a mm-hmm. fascinating story. That's the the story of kind of uh, millions of individual collective or individual decisions creating a collective change, is I think incredibly inspiring and powerful. Um, but I think um, uh, I think there are so many examples. I mean, this is what gives us optimism as environmentalists. So let's just take Flint as another story. Mm-hmm. I think most people are aware of. Um, the travesty of Flint, the fact that a city of 100,000 people was literally poisoned by their own government. Um, We uh, started working with the community in Flint to try to get their infrastructure repaired. We were asked by a number of community members to basically be their lawyers. Um, And for the past year, we have been fighting side by side with these community members on behalf of the community to try to fix, fundamentally fix the problem of the pipes. 
Um, we were able to achieve an unprecedented court um, win, which basically compels uh, and requires the city and of Michigan and the and I'm sorry, the city of Flint and the state of Michigan to replace all of the lead service lines in all of the homes in the community of Flint. That is a pretty incredible victory, mm-hmm. um, and trying to restore again not just the basic service of clean water delivery into the homes of 100,000 people, but the basic faith that people have in water and in their government, um, uh, that is a true victory. Um, And that's a victory that we were able to be a part of, but it's a victory that was only made possible because people in that community stood up for their rights and stood up um, and wouldn't back down until they got the kind of solution that they deserved. So you mentioned Germany and China. Are these the countries that are truly leading the way right now? Certainly with respect to climate change, absolutely. I mean, it's astonishing to kind of um, see the news coming out of China. They're, um, you know, ramping up their renewable energy generation. They um, are trying to um, uh, surpass uh, the cap on the use of coal in the next five years. Um, you know, they're 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 pivoting their entire economy around a clean energy future, mm. um, and they're doing so again not just because they think it's um, critical for their rising population. They think it's critical for the next generation of their economic um, uh, set of opportunities. Um, And so the leadership that's emerging out of China is pretty awesome to witness. Um, And again, uh, there's an aspect of it that's somewhat depressing, given Mm. the leadership that we've advocated to other countries. And there's hope, because China was not in a good place with regards to what they were doing with the environment years ago. They've come a long way. Certainly on global climate accords, it was always a dynamic where we were, um, the United States was always trying to pull China Mm -hmm. along. And, uh, you know, the tables have just completely been turned on that. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't know if any country has that much hope um, left in trying to pull this administration along. I think that this administration has made it really clear where they stand and why they stand on the issues, despite the fact that it's totally irrational. Um, but, you know, in again, the lack of uh, any degree of openness or progress, other countries are just taking up the mantle and just driving forward. So who inspires you in this movement? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I think it is that it, there's so many people that are inspiring to me right now. Um, but it's really the stories of the individual people who, you know, didn't grow up as activists or aren't politicians, but are um, taking charge and really beginning to find their voice on these issues, whether it's, you know, the mother in Flint, Michigan, who stood up and um, demanded that the state look at the quality of water because she knew that was there was something wrong. Melissa Mays, I mean, that the level of courage that that took for a mother of three uh, to show up at the community meetings, to um, be reaching out on a daily, weekly, monthly, and now it's been yearly basis uh, against the politicians that um, were supposed to be doing their jobs. That level of courage is hugely inspirational to me. Um, And that courage, that conviction, that sense, again, that my voice, your voice, 
um, their voice matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I love I love that, and I see more and more of that um, around communities all over the country. So I realize you guys have a lot in your plate right now, and maybe hard to uh, think about the future. But what's the conversation that you guys want, that the NRDC wants to be having in three to five years? Where would you like to be? Well, as we talked uh, about earlier, Jason, this this is a moment um, that we're in, and uh, I've been calling it a movement moment. It's mm-hmm. it's a moment for us to really uh, redefine and build and strengthen the movement that we need. Um, that is not just the movement that we need for these times, uh, that we need for the Trump administration. It's the movement that we need to achieve the world that we know is possible with respect to environmental sustainability um, and uh, curbing climate change. I mean, I think we we need this movement for the long term. And if you, again, if you look at the parallels to the last big movement period in the United States, the 1970s, um, that generation of folks that got together, that marched on Washington, that demanded um, equal rights, that demanded environmental protections, demanded rights for women, that resulted in almost five decades of progressive progress on all of those fronts. We need to re-up that so we for the, the next five are, decades. Are we in the first inning or first quarter of this movement? I, I know mean, it's hard to predict these things. It's, but. it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But I think um, I think history, I think uh, reality is on our side. I mean, if you, if you look at um, any poll of, uh, of any demographic in the United States, most people are environmentalists, whether they use that term or not. They care about the water they drink, the air they breathe, etc. Um, most young people don't have to be convinced that climate change is real. It's not a debate to them. But we haven't figured out how to galvanize that, right? That latent sense of value and, again, belief in our country and our standard of living into a movement that can result in and maintain the solid and progressive policies on environmentalism and sustainability that we need. So I think that is the opportunity that we see right now. And so I certainly hope um, in the next three years that will emerge out of the Trump administration even stronger in terms of the amount of people that we're connected to, the amount of people that are connected to our issues, the amount of people that are working on our issues in whatever way makes sense to them. That's the opportunity that we're trying to seize right now. And it's an opportunity that I think is seizable. So what can the average, you know, let's say someone's listening, average working class person, have a family, you know, working hard to make ends meet, and they're listening right now, and they're fired up. What can they do? What can they do today to help? Well, I think it does not need to be complicated. I mean, there are probably thousands of things uh, uh, any individual can do. Um, My advice is, uh, you know, start, start at home. Right? Start with the choices that you're making um, in your daily lives, whether it's the food that you're buying, whether it's your transportation choices, um, whether it's um, you know turning off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth or taking care to turn off the lights. 
um, just making little choices, again, that I think collectively adds up to making a world of difference, um, is something that's really easy, something that's really tangible, and it's not hard, right? It's, it's just, um, they, they don't need to be hard choices, and people don't need to feel guilty about them. I mean, these are actually kind of liberating choices. You're actually making a difference, and it is a difference that adds up to uh, helping the planet. So I would start at a very, very basic level, but certainly in this heightened time of politics and partisan um, fighting, I think there's an important element of people registering their views, their opinions with their elected officials. Now, whether that happens on a local level, calling your mayor or calling your city councilman, or if it happens on a national level, calling your congressman or your senator or signing a letter to the White House. Um, those things matter. We're still a democracy, regardless of whether or not the Trump administration admits it. We're still a democracy. People have the right to have their voices heard. And I, I think there's never been a more important time for people to exercise their democratic rights in making their voices heard. So there's multiple things that people should be thinking about. But again, I want to underscore the reality that these things shouldn't feel like burdens. They should feel liberating. Right. So find the thing that feels liberating to you and do that to start off with. Amen to that. Rhea, thank you so much for being here. Thank Everyone, you, Jason. Got to check really out nrdc.org. Check them out on social media. Donate, help, do whatever you can. Uh, we are in a very unique time, and it is critical um, that we as a community uh, do everything we can. It's our planet. We're, we're stuck here, guys. <laughs> I, got, I have faith in Elon Musk and some of those guys, but I don't really want to move to Mars. Yeah. Right? Not fun. So yeah. we, we really have to uh, do everything we can. There's no planet B. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Thank, Thank you. you.